This morning's sermon comes from Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5 and 11 through 15. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to, to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. So that's Smitty, he's getting a shout out later in the sermon, just so y'all can put a name with a face. So 12 hours into heart surgery, 12 hours into heart surgery, fighting for his life was where little Francisco Fernandez was on an operating table in this backwater hospital in El Salvador. He was being operated on by a world-famous children's heart surgeon. His name is Dr. Weinstein. They were 12 hours into surgery, and Francisco started to bleed out on the table. In El Salvador, they didn't have the modern medicine and technologies that we have in the States, and the only way that Francisco's life would be saved was by a blood donor. Problem was, Francisco had a blood type that was extremely rare. His blood type was B negative. Less than 2% of the world's population shares that B negative blood type. So in a very precarious situation, fighting for his life on the surgical table, something drastic had to be done. He needed a blood transfusion. Where would they find B negative blood type in this random hospital in El Salvador? Dr. Weinstein shared that B negative blood type. Dr. Weinstein was in El Salvador serving with Heart Care International, a missions organization. And he was volunteering his, um, his paid time off, his vacation time, to go to these third world hospitals and to perform surgeries on these children that have very rare heart conditions. It's there where without even uh, asking the question a second time, he came out from the surgery, sat down, donated blood, drank a bottle of water, 
smashed a Pop-Tart, sat for 20 minutes, scrubbed back in, and saved little Francisco's life. This begs the question, what in the world causes this type of behavior? What causes someone to risk their life, their vacation, their comfort, uh, to, to care for someone who can never pay them back? It's not survival of the fittest. It's not evolutionary biology that says, I'm here to absorb resources. That would dictate little Francisco dies. What causes someone to give their lives for the sake of someone else, a total stranger, someone who can never pay them back? What causes somebody to live like that? Well, we're gonna see the answer to that question this morning as we look at the lives of Timothy and Lydia. Timothy and Lydia, we see in our text, come from two very different backgrounds, two different ages, two different stages, two different cultural contexts, but God uses these very different people to save them and then to set them out for service. We're 2,000 years removed from this text, though. Is God working the same way? He is. So then it leaves us to ask, who is God still saving today, and who is eligible to be used in the service of God? Who is God saving and who is able to serve today? We answer that in two ways. Those raised in the faith, those raised in the faith, saved at a young age, raised in the church. He's saving and, and using those people, but he's also using those new to the faith. Maybe saved later in life. So God is using the spectrum of all human people. And as we get a look into the life of how God is using those who have been raised in the church, saved at a young age, we're gonna examine the life of Timothy and we're gonna encounter him in chapter 16, verses one and two. Read with me there. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So here we get a brief window into who Timothy is. We see that his mother was a Jewish convert. We see also that his father was a Greek. And uh, this text, uh, the Greek here, uh, means someone who is culturally Greek, not a follower of Jesus. So we have his mother is a Jewish convert to Christianity, and his father is not a believer of Jesus at all. We also see in the text that Timothy uh, is very well spoken of. He's got a good reputation. And you'll notice it wasn't just in his hometown, but it was all across the region. He had this wonderful reputation about his service in the mission of God. We also know, as we see in other parts of the New Testament, that Timothy was raised in the faith by his grandmother and his mother. Look at 2 Timothy 1.5 says, I'm reminded, Paul's writing this to Timothy. This is Paul's last letter before he dies. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. That sounds like some Rockingham aunts and uncles from where I'm from, Aunt Lois and Eunice. He says, I'm sure that this faith dwells in you. So we know that Timothy was saved at an early age. We know that he was raised by his grandmother and his mother to be a follower and disciple of Jesus. And as we do dating with these letters of the New Testament, 
Uh, Timothy is around 18 years old. Uh, some scholars put him as late as 20, but uh, I think with the dating that I've done here, probably around 18 years old, when Paul decides to be his father in the faith. His father, Timothy's birth father was a Greek non-believer. Paul sees this young man and he determines to be his father in the faith. And at 18 years old, takes a chance and brings Timothy with him to go and plant churches and to be pastors inside of those churches. Now, this call to missionary life, it didn't come without a significant cost. This is very costly for Timothy. Look at verse three. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So part of the downside of being really well known is that people know you, but they also know all the skeletons in your closet, right? So the Jews in these areas knew that he was half Jewish and half Greek. And it was known uh, through your mother's line that if she was Jewish, you were a Jew as well. So as he was being taken by Paul to go plant churches, he knew that he was uncircumcised. He knew that the Jews in those areas would see him and that he would be completely off limits. He was a half Jew that was uncircumcised. They would not talk to you. They would not be around you. They would hear nothing you had to say. And Paul's uh, kind of mode of operation was to go straight into the synagogues, and then they would plant churches out of there. So to reach the Jews with the gospel, Paul and Timothy decide as an 18-year-old man to get Timothy circumcised. Now, you might be saying at this point, pump the brakes. There's a stark contradiction here. What's wrong? Didn't we know that back in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council said that you don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. That's the whole point of what Paul and Timothy are gonna go tell these churches. In verse five, they were strengthened by that message. What in the world's happening here? We know that Paul in Galatians refused to circumcise Titus. Contradiction. The, the Bible's inconsistent. What's wrong here? Paul is flawed. In his mission, the Bible is wrong. What's going on here? Well, let me illustrate this. Imagine someone comes up to me and they said, Matt, there's some neighbors that have moved down the street, several family members, big family, lots of friends, and they've never heard about Jesus. I would say, let's go talk to them. Well, there's a catch here. There's a catch. They believe to be saved, you have to have faith in Jesus but you need an external sign of salvation, you need to wear a toupee. They believe that bald people are cursed. So to be able to reach these people, you need to make sure you get tooped up so that you can go and make friends with these people because that's what salvation is. It's faith plus some external sign. I would say absolutely no way. Absolutely no way. Look what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. All right, so there's the problem. I'm not doing this to be saved, but if you said, well, Matt, there's these people that have moved to your neighborhood and never heard about Jesus, all right, but they believe that bald people are cursed by God. So for them to welcome you in their home, for them to build a relationship with you, you've gotta put on this toupee, to meet them, I would say, to pay me up. Let me get that Aaron Gibbs wig. Let me get it smitty faded up. Let me look real sharp. 
and let's go make some friends and let's go tell them about Jesus. This is what is happening in the text this morning. This is 1 Corinthians 9 being played out. Look at it. It says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them and its blessings. So you see the trajectory of Timothy's life, saved at an early age, sent to serve, willing to put himself through a painful personal experience, not to be saved, but just so that he can be able to meet other people, so that there's no barrier between he and someone else and the gospel. But it didn't just come at a personal, physical cost. Paul is taking Timothy and they're going through the areas, particularly of Lystra, where Timothy was from. What happened the last time Paul was in Lystra? He was stoned to the point that they thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. Timothy likely saw that event, or if he didn't see it, it would have been such a massive event that he would have been very well versed in that. So what in the world is the motivation for this? We asked earlier, what motivates this doctor to give his own blood and to sacrifice his time to save other people? What causes this type of service? What causes folks to uh, put their lives at risk for the sake of people that they've never met? What's the motivation? Motivation comes from 1 Peter 4. Timothy knew the sacrifice of Jesus. He knew the sacrifice of giving oneself for the sake of the gospel because this life is finite. This is permanent. This is but part of our story. Timothy was willing to risk it all to make the Lord known. First Peter 4, he was willing to share in Christ's suffering so that they may rejoice and to share in the glory that's revealed. You see, as Jesus's sacrifice, his life and his death and his resurrection as that sacrifice motivated Timothy to go and serve the churches, to lay his life down, to experience painful circumstances. That was in the first century, just as motivating as that was 18 centuries later. We read of these missionaries who go to South America in the early 19th century. They were called by the Spirit, like we see in all the travels that you'll see through chapter 16, motivated by the Spirit. They felt called to this uh, this island in South America where it was a large plantation and it was run by slaves and operated by just a few slave owners. These missionaries felt the call to go to South America and they went down there to share the gospel with these slaves to hopefully free them. The slave owners absolutely knew that if the slaves heard anything about the gospel, they would understand their freedom and value and worth and they would be willing to risk everything to escape. They would be willing to risk everything for their freedom. So the slave owners said, missionaries, y'all have got to go. You're not gonna talk to my slave labor. It's not gonna happen. Guess what these missionaries did? They sold themselves into slavery for years just to reach these people with the gospel. They knew the gospel would bring freedom to their souls, but they knew the gospel would empower these workers to break from their bondage. And over the course of years, these slaves were not only saved, but they were freed from this island. That's the motivation that calls us to serve. That's the motivation that leads us. And you see, God is in the business of using every single one of us. 
God is in the business of using every single one of us and our unique stories. And the way that God has built us, every single one of us is being called to serve those around you. Oswald Chambers famously says, if you are going to be used by God at all, he will take you through a multitude of experiences that are not meant for you at all. They are meant to make you useful in his hands. This means that all of your experiences, the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, the rotten, all your successes, all your failures, everything our parents failed to do for us, everything, every coworker that you have let down or been let down by, every friend, every relationship, every experience has been ordained and used by God to be used to reach other people with the gospel. So let's talk about the Timothys in the church this morning. Let's talk about those of you who have been raised in the faith. This applies to you. This applies to those who, as they share their faith, they realize, well, there's not a day where I haven't really known Jesus. I don't have a very exciting conversion story. I don't have really this kind of powerful, welcome to Jesus, I'm on fire moment. Praise God for you. Praise God that you have a boring testimony. I pray that for my children. I pray that they would not have to experience life like I did with brokenness and with breaking other people and leaving a wake of destruction in their past. I thank God that he saves kids. I thank God that he saves kids. I praise God for boring testimonies. Because guess what? Those of you saved in the faith, those of you who've known Christ your whole life, you're able to sympathize and to love people that someone like me can never understand. I don't know what it's like to experience the grace of Christ from birth to adulthood. I wish I did, but I'm not very relatable to those type of folks, and that's, that's on me. When I start sharing my story, people are like, ooh, buddy, I don't know about that. Like, I'm gonna pray for you, thank God. I'm not very attractive to folks who've known Jesus for a long time. I'm a charity case. I am. I will be. I'm a mess. But thank God for you, Timothys, boys and girls, adults even that have grown up in the church. Praise God that you've got boring testimonies. I love hearing boring testimonies. It means the church is loving children well, and that's a blessing. But let's get to our younger Christians, even younger. Let's get to our, our 10-year-olds, even younger. Those of you who are in here that aren't in children's worship, let's talk to the children here today. Like Timothy, do you have a Paul in your life who is strengthening you and challenging you and teaching you the scriptures? Do you have somebody in your life who loves you enough to point you to the cross that models repentance, that challenges your faith? If you don't, young people, I pray that you would, because older Christians have a beautiful way of reorienting our first world problems, right? When uh, the MP3 player in your car and the Bluetooth isn't syncing correctly and you're just having the worst day in the world, a person who's lived a little bit in life can hear that, uh, empathize with you, but just reorient that that's not that big of a deal, Right, young people, you've got a lot to learn from the scars and the wounds and the battle wounds of older Christians. 
Older people, I love you. Do you have Timothys in your life that you're pouring into? Do you have young people that you are able to point to the cross, to challenge, to enter into their young marriages, maybe into their high school and college careers? Are you building relationships with them because you've got so much to offer? What happens is when we don't have people to pour into, when we don't understand and empathize with what the next generation is going into, what it starts to do, and I'm already experiencing, is, oh, this generation's a mess. Oh, they are messed up back in my day. I was flipping tires and walking up school uphill both ways. The world is just, just a mess, right? Older seasoned Christians, if you don't have young people in your lives to point to Jesus, you are going to miss what they're going through. They're going through the exact same problems you went through. It just looks a little bit different and they need you. They need your presence and care. The question for both of these groups and well, where in the world do we find that? Where do I just meet these older people who are wanting to meet with me and love on me? Where do I find these younger Christians to, to shepherd and pour into? How can I be a, a Paul to these people? Community groups. Community groups is the best place uh, to meet people of different ages and stages. We don't segregate people by age and stage, by life situation, by circumstance. We've got everybody in these groups together. The young need the old, the old need the young, so let this be your call to getting involved. The church needs you. The church needs you. You need to hear this. They need less of me and Keith. They need you. Y'all are able and built to reach people that I and Keith and our elders never will. Our church needs you, and they need you serving. Church, the question becomes for all of us, is that the lens in which you view the world through? Do you see your life as every single day that God gives me is a day to serve somebody? I don't care if you're uh, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or if you're uh, flipping tires and cleaning toilets as a teenager just trying to make minimum wage. I don't care where you are on that spectrum. Church, do you see your life through the lens of being a servant? Not self-deprecating, but it's following the model of Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Is this how you see your lives? I pray that if it's not, and I pray that if maybe we've forgotten this calling on our lives, that the Holy Spirit would move like he's doing in the lives of Timothy and what we're gonna see in a minute with Lydia, and he would awaken us to a fresh desire to serve others. It starts in your household. It works through your jobs. It works through your coworkers, your teammates, etc. And then it spills out to your neighborhood. In church, if there's 350 of us in this room right now, and we all started living like this, for the sake of God's glory, Jacksonville would look very different. This is our encouragement to live like this for the sake of the gospel. So we asked earlier, Who's able to be saved and sent to serve in God's kingdom for God's glory? Who's able to be used in the service of the gospel? Well, we saw with Timothy, Timothy is able to be used, that covenant child, that, that child saved in the faith, raised in the faith, those, that mature Christian uh, who doesn't have this wild testimony. Now we turn to Lydia. Lydia is a person who represents those new to the faith. 
saved at a, a later age. Look at verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So here we were encountered with Lydia. And what we know about her is that as she's represented in the text, there's no husband or father around the description of her. Now, I'm not gonna argue with you about it. I'm not gonna like stake my foot on this hill that uh, she was single, but it's very likely that she was an older single woman. So uh, we also know that she's a seller of purple goods. So she was a single entrepreneur businesswoman and she was selling purple goods. Now, purple goods in our day and age uh, is not that important because we can get synthetically purple dyed clothes at relatively no more cost than other things. But in this day and age, to make purple was a very uh, extreme process. It was very laborsome. It took a lot of resources to make purple. Uh, to manufacture purple goods, one gram of purple dye costs 10 times more than gold. One gram. And one pound of purple dyed wool costs about three years of wages for the median income earner in that day and time. So Lydia was in the business of making sure clothes got dyed in this purple dye. She was killing it, y'all. She was making a lot of money. Like she was very prosperous. And way to go, Lydia. We know that she was independently wealthy. We also know that she was a Jewish believer in God. Now, we know that when Paul came to this prayer group, there was no synagogue in the area, so Paul's uh, mode of operation was to go find the synagogue. There wasn't one there, but he found these uh, Jewish believers praying to God. They were doing their Jewish prayers, and at this meeting, Paul starts to share the gospel with them. We know throughout all Paul's letters, I know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That was his thing. He just walks, and he starts sharing with this group of women about Jesus, out of this group, by God's grace, one woman we learn of has her heart opened. This one woman is transformed, and that's Lydia. Now, this is not insignificant for us. This is not a passing point. Who saved Lydia? Who saved Lydia? Was it Paul's eloquent speech? Was it the babbling brook they were sitting by and they were in nature just vibing like, yes, this stream is beautiful. This is, this is how I know that God sent Jesus to live, die, and rise again. Nature has saved me. Thank you, Mother Earth. No, none of that. What was it? It was the Lord. The Lord opened her heart. This is a figure of speech to say that God opened her mind, her emotions, her will. God saved her through what means? The ordinary means of words, plain communication, plain spoken words about Jesus's work for sinners. That's encouraging, y'all. That's encouraging that we don't open hearts. Your coworkers, your loved ones, your kids that don't know the Lord, uh, family members who don't know the Lord, they aren't gonna be saved by you continuing to pound on their head over and over again with new words and new arguments. It's not going to work. God opens hearts. He calls you to be faithful, but God's the one who saves, not us. 
That's why I don't have to be a beautiful orator to share the gospel. I don't have to use million dollar words for y'all to be converted. Praise Jesus. It's the simple, simple and supernatural message of the gospel that Jesus loves sinners so much that he would give his life, that he would die abandoned on the cross between two thieves and rise again just to bring one person salvation. It's that beautiful message shared by very sinful but saved people that changes the absolute world. This is so encouraging because we don't have to be fancy. Our homes don't have to be fancy. We don't have to be perfect. We don't need perfect canned speeches. God's not calling us to be fancy. He's calling us to be faithful right where we are. It's so encouraging for us. This is Lydia's story. This single woman, very successful, had her heart opened by the Lord. And then after she said, what happens? Does she say, yep, it's time to cash in the chips and relax for a little bit. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate you. Have a good one. What does she do? She gets baptized, her and her household, which means likely those who work for her inside of her home. She's baptized, and then she immediately gets to serving. However, her service isn't going around sharing the gospel, becoming this uh, seminary graduate trained uh, speaker of the word. Not at all. But look at verse 15. And after she was baptized, her and her household, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, meaning if I have a valid profession of faith, come stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. You see, Lydia's saving faith was accompanied with service. Her saving faith was followed by service. She immediately opened up her home. She welcomed these misfit missionaries in there. Paul was not thought of well. People were ashamed of Paul. Timothy was this young man. There's this misfit group of guys probably smelled bad, right? She says, come to my home. Hospitality, the gospel, caring for people just by opening up your home. God used this act of hospitality to change the absolute world. You see, what's interesting about Lydia is that through her love of others by opening up her home, she became the first European convert to Christianity, but her home was the first home church. It's the first church established in Europe. And we know that after this experience, the gospel starts just blooming and blossoming through Europe and changing the absolute world. She served exactly how she was equipped based on the work of Jesus right where she was. She opened up her home. So like Timothy, like Lydia, just like all of us who depend upon these letters to be strengthened, just like these churches did, God is calling you right where you are, exactly how you're gifted to use your story, to use your life experiences to be hospitable and to be loving and to be caring for all those around you. You might be saying, well, Matt, I don't feel like I can be a pastor of a church. Matt, my home's not very big. I don't know how I'm gonna house a bunch of missionaries like Lydia. Matt, I just feel ill-equipped. Well, Tina Blessett tells a story about her son, Austin. When he was nine years old, he was going to get his tonsils removed. And as he was sitting 
uh, in the operating table, the anesthesiologist came and he had a fun little uh, doctor's gown. What do you call it? Scrubs. Uh, he had a, a little frog hat on and Austin was just captivated by this frog hat. And he looks at the anesthesiologist and he says, doctor, do you go to church? He says, no, I probably should though. He says, well, are you saved? And he says, no, but after talking to you, I probably should start evaluating uh, what your whole faith system is. And he says, well, all right. And being pacified by this answer, they start to perform the surgery. Well, after uh, the anesthesiologist does this thing, he goes uh, to uh, Austin's mom. He says, I normally don't come back and talk to the family after uh, anesthesia and all that stuff. He said, I just have to tell you my encounter with Austin. She's thinking, uh-oh, nine years old. Is he on drugs yet? I don't know. There's no telling what Austin has said. He says, I wanted to tell you that right before I put the mask on him uh, to put him under, he said, Austin said, hey, I needed to stop and pray. The doctor says, okay, well, go ahead and pray. Austin says, Jesus, I'm so thankful for the nurses and doctors here. Would you let them have a good day? And I pray for the man in the green hat. Would you save him and bring him to church? So this doctor being moved by this prayer came to Austin's mom. And he says, you know, I thought that he was gonna pray for his fear. He was gonna pray for the surgery, that he was gonna pray for recovery, that he wouldn't experience any complications. But he stopped and he prayed for me. He prayed for me. After the surgery, the doctor was walking down the hall and the nurses pulled him aside and he says, nurses, you've got me, you got me. He says, and they had been ministering and sharing the gospel with him and, and praying for him. He says, y'all have got me. He said, based on Austin's prayer, he says, I think I wanna know Jesus too. Gave his life to Christ that day. So you might be saying, I'm ill-equipped. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. My home's not big enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. Remember Paul's encouragement to Timothy. He didn't call him to be anything he wasn't called to be. He called him to be bold. He called him to be faithful. He called him to stick to the scriptures. Not all of you are called to be pastors. Thank God this is a very, very challenging job. But he calls you in your vocations right where you are. If you work at home or if you work outside of the home, no matter where you are or what you do, God is calling you to be a faithful, powerful, bold servant for his glory. He's not calling you to be obnoxious. Austin was not obnoxious but he was bold right where he was, said a simple prayer. So young, saved in the faith, newer to the faith later in life, man, woman, child, adult, no matter where you are on the spectrum, this is our call to be bold and loving servants who share in the exact same faith of Timothy, Lydia, and sweet Austin. Let's pray. Father, to live boldly and to live kindly is very hard. Oftentimes we could be very bold, but not very kind. Oftentimes we could be very kind and not be bold. That's why we need you, Holy Spirit. 
We need you, Jesus, to help us live like you have done. Jesus, help us to model your ability to be bold with truth and love. Help us to have a beautiful balance of both. And when we fail to live like this, would we come back to the cross again and again and again and find forgiveness, to find love, to get refreshment, to be sent out again? Father, you tell us that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Awaken our church, Lord. Awaken our hearts for service. Give us people. Change the way we view our coworkers, our family members, our teammates. Wherever we are, change the way we see them, and may we follow your heart of service for the world. Would you do this for your glory so that when people ask us why we're different, we point to you, Jesus. We pray all this in your mighty powerful name. Amen.